you're listening to the Dworkin Report. I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. We've got a special treat for you on the show today. An uncensored, no-holds-barred, all-questions-answered interview with Rob Goldstone. He wrote the infamous email to Donald Trump Jr. on behalf of his client, Emin Agalorov, to convey his offer of dirt on Clinton to the Trump campaign on behalf of the Russian government that ultimately led to a meeting with convicted campaign chair Paul Manafort and son-in-law Jared Kushner at Trump Tower, which Mueller's team has been investigating for the last year and a half. Rob Goldstone answered every question we asked. Every question. No hesitation, except when our last question, a question based on an exclusive tip we received this summer, literally left him speechless. That's why we decided to present to you the entire 43-minute interview with limited editing, limited interruptions, although the interruptions are important since we do need your support to produce more great programs for you. Like the shows we'll be releasing soon with former Obama Deputy NSA Ben Rhodes, Pod Save America host Dan Pfeiffer, and journalist Scott Stedman. But before we begin, let me explain some of the planning process that went into this podcast. For starters, we read Rob Goldstone's book, which is called Pop Stars, Pageants, and Presidents, How an Email Trumped My Life, cover to cover. It's the only reliable first-hand account of a former journalist and media professional actually involved in the Trump-Russia investigation by someone who was not only present inside of one of the key incidents in Mueller's investigation, but also by someone who has testified under oath to his team and alone, all by himself, without lawyers present, as a witness to the special counsel's D.C. grand jury. You're going to hear on this report the kind of detail and depth from Rob Goldstone that no one outside of Congress and Mueller and those 16 to 23 dutiful citizens on his grand jury have heard before. So here is my interview with Rob Goldstone. I'm here with Rob Goldstone. Thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today and answer some questions about the most debated campaign meeting in modern political history. I really appreciate it. How are you, Rob? Pleasure. Good to, good to be with you, Scott. I, I'm good. I'm good. Yes, it is. Isn't that I, I still have to, I don't mean pinch myself in a glib way, but I still have to kind of pinch myself because I suppose it is really. It's like people said to me, you wrote the most famous email in history. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. And then people said, okay, well, give us another example that shows that's not the case. You know, they may have a point. So yes, the most debated political meeting in a very long time. Right. And it may not, it may have been something that propelled it like, oh, something did happen. But for starters, you've written a book about it and it's called Pop Stars, Pageants and Presidents, How an Email Trumped My Life. It really digs into the details of Trump Tower meeting uh, you know, and you, you facilitated in 2016 for your former client, Emin. Uh, we're not going to hash out every detail inside the book, but I, because uh, I, I want people to read it. Um, but I, I want to illuminate some of the finer points since your your role in the Trump saga is still hotly debated. Mm-hmm. Um, but very quietly, you've tested a Congress and Mueller, right, Rob? I have. I, I've spoken with two Senate committees, a, a House committee, and also uh, the Mueller team and the grand jury. So right. I've done a whole set, a whole handful there. 
Yeah, as a, all of them in a voluntary capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been subpoenaed to anything. I've never been compelled to testify. I, you know, from the minute this broke, I was very clear that um, I was happy to talk to whoever was, you know, wanting to ask me a question or was investigating, um, was investigating what's now termed Russia Gate. Right. No, and that's not the easiest thing. You you don't live in the states now, right? Like, so you have to travel here, or were they are they able to video teleconference with you, or? No, no. You know what? I actually do live in the states. I, I've lived in the states for about twenty something years, but I was traveling for most of last year. So the issue was that I just had to work schedule the timing so I could fly in, and I actually flew in twice. Once in December to do the kind of. Capitol Hill ones, and then in March, I think it was this year, to do the Mueller one and the uh, grand jury. So it was really only an issue of scheduling, nothing else. Were you surprised about any of the questions? I mean, obviously, I, we can't talk about all of it, but uh, were you surprised about any of the questions that you got? Like, they know a lot more than we thought, or, uh, you know, how much they actually tried to dig into you? Like, were there any uh, surprises that have, have happened, or has it been pretty basic so far? Um, no, I wouldn't use the word basic, but um, nothing came at me where I thought, wow, I never thought of that, or wow, I can't believe they thought of that. And I didn't really expect that to be, because outside of sending my now infamous email and the meeting and helping set up Miss Universe in Moscow, which are three very major Trump points in all of this, you know, I'm not a political person, so there's nothing. So whilst, yes, I expected them to ask me about my relationship with the Aguilarovs, with my clients, my relationship with Donald Trump, and their relationship with Donald Trump, I expected all of that. There was nothing really that, that made me think, oh, they're going down this particular road. I found, especially with the Mueller inquiry, I found that to be a very methodical, very logical um, type of questioning um it was actually much easier for me to kind of grasp and follow having had a few experiences on capitol hill where it's kind of i don't mean a free-for-all in that respect but it's much i found it much more difficult to concentrate on all of the individual bits on those as opposed to the Mueller line of questioning which was was far more logical right now and has it been tough have you changed your viewpoint on working with the news when you become a subject of the news um your your perspective about media and how it's reported have you changed your your viewpoint on pr and everything you've done um so far just becoming in the spotlight you know it's a really interesting question it's a really great question because you know before i was a, a manager and a publicist i was a journalist for years and you know i wasn't a hard-hitting kind of Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. I was a tabloid journalist, so a news journalist and an entertainment journalist. So I'm not naive to how the press works, but what this experience showed me was just how different the media has become since the days when I was a, a direct part of it. You know, in my day, I sound like I'm 100 years old, but in my day, at least you had time when you wanted to scoop somebody, at least there was 24 hours, 48 hours involved before the next newspaper came out or the next whatever. Now, as you know, within seconds of somebody getting an idea, they run with it. And the problem I have with that is when it's not true or it's based on really vacuous and often incorrect information, 
the attitude I've seen from people that have done this about me is, oh, don't worry, we can correct that incorrect story in the next five hours or two hours. And I think it's that that's allowed people to be a bit floppier and a bit less um, held to account for what they do. And I think that's a shame. And I think sometimes when Donald Trump screams fake news, there aren't many things, if anything, he says, where I nod to it. But there's just a little part of me when he screams fake news that goes, I don't think he has the terminology right, but I know some of what he's saying because I've lived it. And I would never have thought that before this experience. Right, and I've, I've, I understand that. I've been hit by the right uh, on different occasions with a oopsie-daisy and no author attached to it and no real ownership over the blog. Um, so there's been a lot, a lot of things like that. When you faced the, the grand jury, did you have an idea of who they were after? Were there questions about Trump involved with that? Well, that, you know, they don't question you, so it's, it's kind of the same, in my case at least, the same person that had questioned me uh, the, the previous week or the previous however many weeks it was, one or two weeks before, question me, they listen more than anything. But they, they are able to um, ask questions of you. And at the end, you know, I had a couple of, I think what they call redirects. And I, I was, uh, I suppose, uh, comforted or pleased to know that they were merely logistical questions. They needed to follow one little travel thing that they didn't quite understand and something that was extremely it showed a couple of them at least had paid attention. And what they said made sense. It was just they were only logistical questions. It was nothing dramatic. So, no, it was along the same lines. You know, I don't know if anybody listening has ever testified before a grand jury, even in a voluntary capacity as a witness. You know, I was never the subject, the target, any of those things. I was there as a witness. It's terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying certainly to me who didn't grow up in America, doesn't even really know what makes up a grand jury, what is all. I mean, I, I, I don't live in that world of politics. I live in the world of entertainment. I look after people's egos, you know, day in and day out. I, I don't deal in this world. So it was really, it really was. Um, I think it, it's terrifying. Even, the, even when you know fundamentally you're not a target of anything, you're just there. You're almost like a witness to a, a road traffic accident. You're telling what you saw and what you know and what you did. It's still, you know, as you know, you have no lawyers present with you. You're on your own and you have 22 or 23 people staring at you for a few hours whilst you answer questions, which you have sworn under oath to answer truthfully. And people might say, well, that's easy. You just tell the truth. That's true. You tell the truth. But you try remembering what you had for breakfast five years ago. (laughs) <laughs> and or remembering something you said to a friend of yours five years ago, knowing that you just sworn an oath. So you really have to pay attention and you have to, um, what I had to learn was, you know, to just answer a question. I have a tendency, as you may have gathered by now, to sort of ramble a bit or, <laughs> or expunge on things. And you have to really just keep it to the question they've asked you and the answer. And if you can do that, then I think, you come through it okay. But, um, you know, I'm sure that's one of the reasons why the lawyers involved with Trump don't particularly want him to sit down in such a, in such a setting. Right. And one of the things you comment on in the book is how you believe the media held a false portrayal of your closeness to Donald Trump, partly based upon the photo. Oh, completely. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I found a I found a photo and a video and CNN covered like it was it, you were in it. It wasn't you weren't the target of that either. It was Michael Cohen um, because he mm. said he had no ties to anyone in Russia and all this other stuff. So we found this stuff uh, mm. and it was the Las Vegas meeting to ink the un, uh, Miss Universe Moscow deal, I believe, about a month b- before news of the g Uh Do you think Donald Trump really did like you as much as someone like him likes anyone? Uh, because you brought him an unexpected financial windfall and managed a very, very, very important business relationship. Did Donald actually actually like you, or you know what was your relationship with him like? That's another really great question. You asked a very good question. Um, so I uh, and I say that actually, I just want to qualify that because I, I've done such a lot of interviews, and when people say to me, "Now tell me, you wrote an email. What is this?" and I'm like, "Oh my god, you <laughs> could just Google that. At least these are intelligent questions. That's what I'm saying." Right. Um, no, thank you. I think Don. I think you know. I say in the books somewhere that one point Emin says to me, "Can you ask Trump to be in a music video? He really likes you." Or can you ask him to do something? He likes you. And I said to him, "Yeah, right. He likes me. We met him an hour ago." You know, it's that kind of thing. And so I think, did Donald Trump like, yeah, he liked me as as much as maybe anybody else that he bumped into five times. But the media portrayed me as everything from a close family friend, a close business associate, someone that did a lot of deals with Trump. You know, I've always maintained that, forget Donald Trump, but even with the email to Don Jr., if I had sent that email and said, you know, John Smith has asked me to do this, Well, he wouldn't have even answered my email because I was never, when he talked about doing this for an acquaintance, the media all assumed I was the acquaintance. Well, I was never the acquaintance. I was the conduit. My client was the acquaintance. And so, yes, if I would have, if I would have bumped into Donald Trump, I'm sure he would have recalled who I was. Or if I'd have said to him, hey, it's Rob. Emmons manager. I mean, I never did. I'm just using hypothesis here. I'm sure he would have been very cordial. But what I did learn from my, uh, I think, five encounters with him was that he had this ability to make you feel like you were his buddy, like his mate, like his friend, like he cared. And I think that's part of what probably got him elected. Because, you know, I said something, and, and I know it sounds a bit crass, but I said, you know, I I cringe a bit when I hear people say, he's just like us, he's one of us. And I say, yeah, and he would drive over you in his Rolls Royce to get to his gold-plated toilet. But if you think he's you, that's perfectly fine. But, you know, so I never thought I was his friend, his buddy, his whatever. I just thought that it was a a warm enough uh, business relationship, which had been set up primarily just to do the Miss Universe contest in Moscow. And... I selfishly was excited about that because I was trying to break my client, who was a a very well-established, very successful uh, entertainer, musician, singer in Russia, who wanted to be successful in other parts of the world, especially in the U.S. And for me, this was a, a major way of doing it. So everyone had something to gain from it, but that was really the basis of it. As I say, so, you know, was I friendly with Donald Trump? No, but I was friendly enough in a in a business setting. Right, right. No, that that makes a lot. You know, there's a lot of business that you 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 had to do around Miss Universe Moscow, obviously. But um, you know, most of that is the planning of it, and it probably didn't involve as much of of you, except for the initial stages. Um, d- did you have to? Have you met Putin before? Have you worked a lot with Putin or in Russia before? Um, you know, that was one of the questions people were were curious about. 
Sure. So I've never met Putin. Um, I was excited because during Miss Universe, and you have to remember during Miss Universe, all of this Russia, um, Russia gate, Russia drama didn't exist. So let's just say it was no different than if we were doing this in Greece or China or wherever, Australia. So I was excited because there was a chance that Trump and Putin would meet. It was always the, the you know, the, the, the white elephant in the room. Would they meet? Would they not meet? An official request had gone in for them to meet. And I knew that if it was the last thing I did, I would somehow wheedle my way in to go to that meeting for one reason. I... I as you may have seen, if you've seen the press, I was obsessed with like weird and wonderful selfies. And I thought this would be the king of all selfies. <laughs> Me and the Kremlin with Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. I knew, I, I knew where I should stand and how to get it. And all of that was in my head. What I didn't care about was why he wanted to meet him or why the other one may have wanted to. That never played a part. I cared about getting the king of all selfies. Now, because you've seen the book, as you probably know, my book is dedicated to the king of Holland. And the reason it's dedicated to the king of Holland is just this. The reason that Donald Trump didn't get to meet Putin during this universe was that, that the King of Holland had an official meeting at the Kremlin with Putin and was late. He'd been delayed somehow in traffic, in something, or in landing his plane. And so when I was telling this story on Capitol Hill, one of the staffers for, I believe it was Senate Intelligence, afterwards came to me and smiled and said to me, you know, you should send the King of Holland the biggest bunch of flowers you can find. Because if you'd actually kind of secretly gone with Donald Trump to meet Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin, can you imagine how much more awful your life would be right now? And he laughed and I said to him, you know what, although I'm laughing, you are actually correct. And I'm going to dedicate my book to the King of Holland for being late and save me more drama. So my answer is I've never met Putin I've never done any work in Russia, and in fact, have never done any work as such in Russia. I just happen to represent internationally a Russian pop star and an oligarch. Now that you've marched into the center of a massive international political scandal, so crazy that people are asking if you've met Russia's president, uh, can I ask you an easy question? Because I'm curious. Uh, when is the, and I don't know how, it, if it, if you vote in Britain or if you vote in here or if you can vote here, um, but when is the last mm -hmm. time you registered to vote anywhere at home or, you know, did you vote here, uh, in the last election or, you know, where, where do you vote if you're able to, I'm not sure. The need, okay. So I'm, I'm a, a dual citizen of both the UK and the U S so I'm able to vote in both. I have never voted and I never thought I would have to tell anybody that publicly ever, but I thought it was. You know, again, a lot of people ask me that question. So I've never been registered to vote for anybody and I've never voted for anybody. And um, that's it, really. And, and I, I, I said, I think it's public testimony through Senate Judiciary that I said, you know, if I was pushed and if literally I'm saying if someone had held a gun to my head and said, you have to vote in 2016 or we pulled the trigger, I would have voted for Bernie Sanders because of a couple of things. I thought that, like myself, he was a bit of a disruptor. I thought he was a bit unusual. And, as I said to this committee, he looked like my old Polish grandfather who was a bagel maker in Manchester, England. And those were the reasons. Nothing more, nothing less. So I'm not proud to say it, but I've never voted in England and I've never voted in America. I think it, it just underscores the fact that you're less politically motivated 
Um, you know, and that I think that's important for people to know. Um, well, let's move well, on. Not only no, that, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, I think this is an interesting topic because during meeting with uh, members of Congress, members of the House Intelligence Committee, this subject came up about voting and supporting whatever. And I got the idea that they thought I was a Trumper, for want of a better word. And I said, you know, I, ju- I just want to tell you guys something and then do with it as you will. But, you know, as as well as all that you know about Emin and I meeting Trump and the email, way before that, I created a little video about Hillary Clinton using Emin's song called Woman. And the chorus of the song said, no matter what they say about you, woman, we know you're amazing. And when she got the nomination uh, for president, I said to Emin, you know, your song would be amazing. I, you know, I, if I could break you anywhere, I would love them to use this music. And he goes, that's a great idea. Let's create something. And we created this little video of an iconic image of Hillary in this chorus. And it seemed to floor members of the community. Trey Gowdy especially said to me, Mr. Golson, I'm so confused. You're now a Hillary Clinton supporter. I said, I'm not on anything. My point I'm trying to make you is I'm not a Donald Trump supporter. You just think I am. And I'm trying to explain to you that in the same way as I wasn't pro-Trump, pro-Clinton, pro-anything, I was pro-my client. And I was trying to align my client in the one instance of doing the Hillary video. And in the second instance, I was trying to placate my client who was asking me to send this email to get a meeting. But it was about being pro-Emin, not being pro-Trump. And I just felt they needed to understand that. So I use this as an example, but it really confused them. They were like, why would you do something to support Hillary if you were, I said, because you're assuming that's why I'm doing it. I'm telling you, I'm not political, so I don't care. What I am is quite a good publicist or marketer, and I'm trying to promote my client. That's the bit that seems to be overlooked. This episode of the Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. Well, let's discuss Emin for a second. The the Russian pop musician who grew up in Jersey, uh, that that is the state, mm-hmm. not the country, um, who who has applied your lessons in posting, obviously, and gotten really good attention, actually, it, for, for the more so positive than negative at least from what i've seen um you know on social media and videos and, and being able to troll moeller in, in that video and some other people kind of making fun of the mm-hmm. situation but uh you're and i and i apologize for asking about i have to ask about the email but your your email exchange with don jr is considered a smoking gun but can you explain for our listeners mm-hmm. why you consider emmons phone calls with don jr much more important than your don jr email i i consider it that way because my email didn't get the meeting, and I'll explain why that is in a minute. My email got a call between Don Jr. and Emmett, and that's really what it was designed by me for it to do. People have read and they've seen, and I've said it many times, the information I was given by Emmett was unusual because we never talked about politics, but it was very scant. It wasn't, I couldn't get answers. I couldn't get enough answers. I didn't really know what I was talking about. So because of that, I wanted to ultimately put the two of them together, Don Jr. and Aguilera. And so 
in my email, I do something which is very unusual for any publicist and certainly for me. I suggest that the person I'm sending the email to, Don Jr., speak with the person I'm sending the email from, which is Emmett. And when Don answers that and goes, if it's what you say it is, I love it, especially later, perhaps you're right. Perhaps I just speak with Emin about it directly first. I was like, thank you, Lord. That's all I care about. He gets it, that I need them to speak. And now, why should I care about this a minute longer? Because the two of them will now speak on a phone together and talk about all the things that either Emin didn't know or didn't want to share with me. After that, I didn't care. I know it sounds heartless. I know it sounds ridiculous. I didn't care because I didn't understand why I was in the middle of this anyway. And the minute I was able to pass that on and let them speak, why would I care about it? The two people involved have now spoken. So I've always thought this part was really overlooked by the media. There was a call. They spoke. Why would I care? My email was a conduit to get that call. After the call, Don Jr. sends me something saying, thanks, Rob, for helping set it up. Emin then sends me something right afterwards saying the meeting can now go ahead. It's on Thursday, June 9th. You'd think I would know that offhand. I had to think for a minute. And then Don writes back and goes, and this really did surprise me, it will be himself and Paul Manafort, the chairman of the campaign, and Jared Kushner. And I thought, okay, that must have been a good call because now he's added in two of the most senior figures in there. And I just want to say at this stage, so when people say to me, and a lot of people say it, a lot of people scream it at me, a lot of people tweet it at me and say, how could you, Rob Goldstone, Rob Goldstone from Manchester, England, who grew up in England, how could you have not known to stop this meeting, to not let it go ahead because blah, blah, blah. And I say to them, well, okay, I understand your question. How could Paul Manafort, he's the chairman of the campaign. He's not some idiot music publicist from Manchester, England that may not know any better. He's the chairman of the Trump campaign. Why not direct your question there? Why, why should I be the one out of all of that group that should have known better? I don't know the answer to that. That's a good question. Um, when you found out that, that uh, Ike, you know, Kavaladze, uh, the Aguilar's the, family CFO, um, would be there. I think he closed the Miss Universe Moscow deal or helped it with you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that would be at the Don Jr. meeting. Did you believe that that made it really weird or signified a higher importance for the Trump Tower meeting than your initial ex- expectations? Did you take that meeting as in like, oh, this is an important meeting or you thought of it as just another day and you had to stop by and it was a pain in your butt to do it? Mm-hmm. I actually thought that it was logical initially that Ike was going to be there because I'd worked with him on Miss Universe. Uh, I found him to be extremely smart, talented, and more importantly, bilingual. And I assumed he was there as a translator, apart from anything else. And because Emin had said this ask had come from his father, Arad Aguilar, who Ike worked directly for, it made perfect sense to me. But... Outside of that, like when this little group showed up and there was a translator, that's when I was like, this is weird. Isn't Ike the translator? What's he doing there? But I just assumed he was there because his direct sort of, it's not his boss, but he's like direct boss, for want of a better word, Aras Aguilar, had asked for the meeting. So, no, I, 
you know, I, again, I say glibly, the thing that was the most annoying for me was I was trying to beat the traffic back to New Jersey and get out of New York. And I was never supposed to be in the meeting. That's well documented. But it was one of those bizarre, perfect storms where when Ike and this crew arrived, they said, hey, Rob, because you know Don Jr. a little and we don't know him at all, will you just do the handoff and introduce us? Seemed like a fair thing to say. And then when I introduced them to Don Jr., he said, why don't you just sit in because you can get him out at the end. And the get him out bit seemed to imply we're really busy. It's going to be a really quick meeting. And if you're there, you can get them out quicker. And that also seemed fair. And many people have said to me, are you angry that Don Jr. or annoyed that Don Jr. asked you to stay? Because now it put you front and center at the meeting. And, and I just have to say, it's one of the things I'm most grateful for because if I had set up this meeting and it had blown up into all that it had and I had never attended that meeting, well, I would have had no idea what was said behind those doors. At least, if nothing else, I do know what went on in the meeting and that that in itself was definitely not what I believe anybody was expecting. It was all about Magnitsky and adoption and all of that because I was sitting there. Um, but yes, it, it was a pain. I just wanted to get out of there. If anybody lives in New York or New Jersey will know that as it builds up past four o'clock, the only thing New Yorkers care about if they live in Jersey is getting through that Lincoln Tunnel before it takes hours. So that's what I was caring about, not this meeting, which I knew nothing about. If you took like a 30,000 foot view, how would you like summarize the meeting? Like you left the meeting and how would you summarize it right after you left? Like, was it successful or was it? Oh, right after I left, I was furious. No, right after I left, I was so furious that when I, so I, I would summarize the meeting as, I've always thought this from even, I just didn't know the relevance of it. I thought it was a bait and switch. I thought that whoever Natalia Veselnitskaya was, that it was obvious that she was something to do with what was the Magnitsky Act. I'd never heard of Magnitsky Act at the time. Now I feel like I'm like the world's expert on it, but um, I'd never heard of it. And that she had used this kind of dangling of a carrot as a base of wanting to talk about this illegal funding to Hillary's campaign and the Democrats, but had not specified who that was coming from. Well, once we got into the meeting, it was obvious it was all part of the same thing because the people she said were doing this, you know, outrageous funding that shouldn't be allowed because they hadn't paid taxes were Bill Browder and the Ziff brothers, who I would later discover were the architects of the Magnitsky Act. And immediately she kind of pivoted to talk about, you know, how awful the, the Magnitsky Act was and more importantly, the price that was being paid by American families who wanted to adopt Russian children, which again, I had no idea what she was talking about. No idea. I actually shot Ike Kavaladze a text message and said, are we now having a meeting about adoption? Am I missing something here? And so at the end of it, because Don Jr. wrapped it up really quick when this all came up and said, you know, I, I, I just want to say that my father's a private citizen and you should address these concerns to the Obama administration. And thank you very much. And I got them out. I literally herded them out like farm animals. I was like, get out of <laughs> here. Because it was obvious that this was a bit of an embarrassment. And for me, it was the worst thing that could have happened. Because my big fear when I sent this email, why I kept saying to Emin, I don't really understand what you're talking about, is not knowing what it was and being embarrassed if we were doing something that, that just left me with egg on my face. Well, this to me was the most ludicrous meeting I'd ever sat in. And I said to Don Jr., 
as we were leaving. I said, I'm really sorry, it was the most embarrassing meeting. And he said to me, I just have no idea what it was about. And I looked at him and said, it was just inane nonsense. And I think he actually quoted my quote somewhere. I read it somewhere. I just said to him, it was inane nonsense. I've no idea. I walked out and I called my client. I called Emin and said, this was, you have asked me to do many, many embarrassing. This was the most embarrassing thing you've ever asked me to do. And the very thing I warned you about, that this was nonsense. You didn't know what you're talking about. I didn't know what I was talking about. It's politics. You know nothing about politics. You're right just blew up. I never want to talk about this meeting again. And I hung up on it. And the funny thing is I never did talk about it with him again until the story broke. Right. Bizarre. Yeah. And, and Natalia was... And I hope I would never have to speak to these people. What I realized at the end of it was, this is what I thought. They would never take my call again about anything. They would never take anything I sent to them seriously again. And that's it. And I looked at it as, you know, Emin had blown a chance that if... Donald Trump should become president, which at the time, as you and most people know, there was as much chance of you or I becoming president, <laughs> but whatever, that Emin had blown a big opportunity because I knew that with our own sort of schmooze appeal, I could probably have got him to do a photo in the White House, do something. You know, I had got Donald Trump to be in a music video with Emin during Miss Universe, so it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility that that could happen. But I just thought, you've blown it. You've set up a meeting for some random attorney that you appear to know nothing about, and she's talked about adoption. And they've ended the meeting and said, we've no idea what that was about. So I didn't think that was a great result, to be honest. Right. And Natalia was speaking English? I don't know the answer to that. And this also puzzled some of the congressmen who said to me, are you telling us you don't know the difference between English and Russian? I said, no, no, I'm telling you that I can't remember. I was paying such little attention to it that I actually don't recall what language she was speaking. A part of me thinks she may have read some stuff that was in English, but I don't know. And I mean, there were enough people there that could translate, uh, although the translator did translate, but I don't know if he translated all of it, some of it or none of it. Right. No, I've, I've been in meetings where I'm on my phone and I'm not paying attention, <laughs> where I'm just sitting there. Or, yeah, you know. because I was just sitting there. You know, I, I'm not supposed to be here anyway. What do I care? I didn't have to report back on it. I wasn't supposed to be there. I was just doing them a favor. You know, it was one of these bizarre, like, uh, you know, it bites you. If you try and do someone a favor, as I did by sitting in, it has a tendency to kind of bite you at some point. So there you go. I, I didn't pay a lot of attention. Right. I, under, I understand that. And you, you said, had you met Don Jr. before in like Vegas or, you know, planning Miss Universe Moscow? Because you had mentioned he knew you like no, a little bit. Not then. Yeah, not then. I had met him, um, you know, after Trump was in Moscow, in fact, while he was in Moscow. Emin, um, I didn't go, but Emin drove him around the big property they own there, which you have to understand the Aguilaros were known as the Trumps of Russia. So it was, for them, it was a big deal to show the actual Trump around their kind of real estate empire. And Donald Trump being Donald Trump, Emin told me that he'd said to him, oh, we should do a Trump Tower. And within an hour, Trump had announced at a press conference, Trump Tower's next. Does that surprise me? No. Should it surprise you? No. You hear how Donald Trump reacts. He hears something, he likes something, off he goes. And so his suggestion to Emin had been that um, when he was next in New York, when Emin was next in New York, he should meet with Don Jr., and Emin had suggested to me that I come with him. So I'd met Don at a dinner um, that we had, which was very nice. It was a get to know you, hello, how are you type of thing. And then on one of the occasions that I had gone with Emin to Donald Trump's office for Emin to say a hello, 
we saw Don Jr. on the way out and said hello. So I think I met him twice and then obviously at the meeting. Um, but that was the extent of my so-called, you know, Trump family friends, family ally, business associate, whatever else they called me. I'd met Donald Trump five times and Don Jr. twice and then the meeting. Oh, right on. And did anyone talk about, just to pepper this in, did anyone talk about Hillary's emails or WikiLeaks or Julian Assange inside the room? Because that's been... No. Okay. I know. No, none of that. Because the thing about this was it was a really short meeting, like in its entirety. And let's remember, it had to be translated, at least in part. I would say this was a, at most, a 20-minute meeting, 50-minute, of which part of it was taken up with her talking about Magnitsky and adoption. There was also the bit where Jared in the middle, when she talked about Ziff and Browser and funding, just looked at her. And I only remember this because it was a funny statement. I was sitting next to him. He went, I have no idea what you're talking about. Could you possibly refocus? And the reason I remember it was instead of refocusing, whether it was a language issue, I don't know. She restarted from the exact confusing place that had kind of agitated him in the first place. So I kind of smiled and thought this could cause his head to explode. It was that kind of thing. So, but you know, it was a really short meeting. So no, it was originally about her saying, I recalled her, cause I was listening out for bits that might make any sense to me. And she talked something about browsers, this, you know, funding the Democrats and Hillary's campaign and all that and how they, they were taxes that were due on this money. I was like, no idea what you're talking about. And then immediately switched to this. But what I really want to talk about is the Magnitsky Act and how unfair it is. And what about adoptions? And then talked about adoption. And that's what stuck with me, which was, why are we having a meeting about adoption? I mean, that's the one thing. I know Don Jr. said that and has said that, which is the meeting was about adoption. He's not 100% wrong. What he's not is he doesn't take that to its logical end. You know, he should say, it was, it was about adoption. We went into it thinking it was about something else. But if he just said the meeting was about adoption, he's not 100% wrong because that's all I actually came out of that meeting thinking, we've just had a meeting about adoption. What has that got to do with anything? So, but obviously it's a part of the Magnitsky Act. And again, I, I should just say here, I didn't know at the time, but now that I've obviously read a bit and learned a bit more about it, the Magnitsky Act is obviously hugely important to the Russians and to one Russian in particular, which is Vladimir Putin. And I know that because when he and Trump were on the stage in Helsinki this year, I was watching this on TV and um, I heard Putin talk about the Magnitsky Act and then mention Bill Browder by name. And I was like, wait, wait, these are the very people that she talked about, that she wanted to focus on. So my idea that this was a bait and switch and was hugely important could be correct because the switch is always dismissed as, well, why would they go to all this trouble just for Magnitsky? Well, Vladimir Putin is standing on a stage, a world stage, and talking about the Magnitsky Act and mentioning Bill Browder. So he must think of it as something of a, you know, a thorn in his side. So maybe it's not that far-fetched a This episode of the Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. 
just two more questions for you, and I pro- promise they'll be quick, mm-hmm. but thank you again for taking so much time. Uh, no, you're talking to somebody who's testified for eight hours stretches, <laughs> so you're fine. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully the questions aren't as hard. I, I appreciate you explaining uh-huh. in, in depth. Right. Um, did, did you know a couple of our uh, folks that are journalists have said that uh, Ivanka ran into Natalia. Did, did Ivanka have any involvement in the meeting? Did you see her at all? Did she drop by? So I didn't see her, but what I heard actually happened is that as they were, so the Russian group, as I call them, ICE and the Russians, were ahead of me because I was busy saying to Don Jr., like a minute behind them, you know, I'm embarrassed, all of this, is that as they were leaving to go in the, in the elevator, the elevator doors opened and Ivanka came out and went, hello, and they went, hello, and she walked off. Now, all I have to say to that is, again, I'm not trying to wave a flag for Ivanka or anybody else's. If she said to them, go to hell, that would have been a story. The fact that she said hello to people that were standing in front of her <laughs> when the elevator doors opened, to me, isn't unusual. I know some journalists thought it was unusual. It isn't unusual to me. So I wasn't there, so I didn't see Ivanka. But that's what I heard happen, which is she was coming out as they were waiting for the elevator, and she went, hello. So, again, wasn't there. Other than that, can't comment. But it seems like something that somebody would say. Understood. And, and last question, our, our, there's a woman named Arzu Alieva, and she is the daughter of Azerbaijan's president and Emin's former sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, and this mm-hmm. is, bear with me on this one, because it takes a little bit of explaining. But, yeah, this sounds interesting. Go on, her name <laughs> never come up. I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> In your book, you talk about not wanting to send the request uh, email to Don Jr. for Emin, and even bearing a post-election mm-hmm. follow-up meeting request from his father, Ross. Soon after that... Mm-hmm. Emin got divorced from his wife, uh, who's the daughter of the president of Azerbaijan. In August, Emin's former mm-hmm. sister-in-law went on an Israeli television station this August to say he's a Russian spy. Arzu Aliyeva said that that's the real reason for his divorce from her sister. The Israeli station deleted the interview so- soon afterward, uh, but not before we got a copy in Google's cache. So in retrospect, of course... Do you believe her? Do you think your former client, Emin Agalarov, is a Russian spy? Wow. Um, well, that is so bizarre. Um, no, I don't. But I, you know what? The, the, well, I, I, what's interesting about that is I've met Azulia, but maybe twice at various parties or things there. And I can't believe she, she's like someone that the fact that she would even say anything like hello is shocking. I mean, to me, she's very... She's not even Ivanka, because Ivanka seems like she's a bit more go-get-it. She's like a sort of, hello, nice to meet you. So that's shocking to me in the first place. But um, no, you, you know, if you'd asked me this a year ago or 18 months ago when this first broke, I would have said 100%. This was Emin not really paying a lot of attention to what his father had asked him, and it was scant, and then he asked me, and it was all a bit, whatever, it was almost a game of telephone. But when Natalia went on NBC and said, I am an informant, And when the New York Times had information that she may have shared what she was going to talk to this meeting about with people in power at the Kremlin, you know, I'm I'm old enough and I suppose wise enough or foolish enough to leave like a 5% gap in which I say 95%. My answer to your question is no, I don't believe that. But I'll leave 5% there because... People like Mueller and like the various congressional committees that are still operational 
have spent a lot of time are far smarter, have, are a much higher pay grade than me, and are trying to work out all the logistical pieces of this. So maybe I'll be surprised, and maybe her statement will have some merit. I, in my heart, don't believe that to be the case, but that's just a, a gut feeling and have known somebody for five or six years. Um, but, but as I say, I, I, I'm sort of smart enough to leave a little gap there that if someone wants to prove to me otherwise, sure, I'm open to listen. Sure. So it's more, uh, and you had mentioned this before, he was less political or whatnot, more opportunistic, you know, riding in the lane and just yeah. kind, of, kind of riding with the wave um, uh, yeah. of that. And, and also, when, you, when, you're, um, when you're not only a, a successful pop star in your own country, whichever that country might be, and you're trying to break somewhere else, but you have the backing, whether that's your father's backing or your own, and you have the money, well, you believe that you can be opportunistic because... You know, if you or I wanted to um, stage a Miss Universe concert, well, we might have brilliant ideas or be creative, but we don't have millions of dollars to do it if we find that that's going to be a good platform for ourselves. So all the things have to align. And when they do, you can become creative and opportunistic because you can back it up. Because if somebody suddenly says, that's a great idea, now do it, well, you have to be able to do it. You know, in my, in my entertainment world, my professional world, I have clients all the time that say, I wish I could hire Beyonce to open my new thing. And I'm like, you can hire Beyonce if you've got millions of dollars, but understand it will cost you another million to put on the show, let alone do all that. So you have to understand all of the bits that go with it. And if you can do that, you can make it happen. You can be opportunistic. But, but yes, if Emin was anything, he was passionate about breaking internationally and and whatever that took as long as it made sense creatively and um yeah do i think his sister is more pleased with the russians but it's the only question you've asked me that brought both a smile and left me a bit speechless just because i have met her a couple of times and she's a the best about it was very quiet like wouldn't say as i would say in england boo to a goose so it's a bit of a dramatic statement to make but i'm not disputing she made it um i'm just surprised by it understood no uh i, I appreciate your time your book is very detailed i recommend people pick it up and uh, give it a read pop stars pageants and presidents how an email trump my life is there anything else um you want to say to people uh you know especially people who are your critics blind critics who are you know, obviously criticizing you as being part of the meeting um, or, or anything else that you'd like us to know? I think, you know, and I really appreciate this, uh, this, this platform for what we're better to be able to, to explain some of this. And I hope that um, a, a lot of people on Twitter, actually, who were horrific in terms of, well, you can imagine what people who criticize you and don't like you or like on Twitter. I've been really pleasantly surprised by how many of them have sent me private Twitter messages and said, we just want to say we saw you on TV or we read your book or we did whatever, and we misjudged you or miscategorized who you were or what. Or a few have said, and I like this because they got it, we understand why. Because so many people have said to me, well, we have to do things that we hate that our bosses ask us to do because I've never made a secret of it. I could have said no. And I also could have looked for another job or another client. It's just, I didn't choose to say no. I choose to placate my client as I've done for many years with different clients. And we often have to do requests and things. They just don't normally involve politics or blow up like this to nobody cares. 
So I hope if anybody takes something away from this or from reading the book, it's that they could maybe, even for a minute, put themselves in that situation and think about when you've been, you know, we, I had one client, I worked for one person, not for a hundred clients. If somebody asks you to do something and you, you warn them, but you warn them for the right reasons, which is it's politics, don't bother. And they still insist and insist, well, yeah, you have a choice. You can say no, but you might just be looking for a job the next day. So what would you do? And I think if anything, I'd be interested and I am constantly interested to see people's feedback because that's where they go. So you were just doing your job. I wasn't a Russian spy. I didn't work for the Kremlin. I didn't work for Putin. I didn't work for Trump. I didn't work for Fusion. I didn't work for Hillary or the Democrats. I was just a publicist who was doing his job. That's what I hope people will, will get out of it. And again, I really appreciate uh, this and, uh, and your time in asking these questions. Rob Goldstone, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks to Rob Goldstone for taking the time for this interview. Check out his book when you get a chance. I want to thank Grant Stern, the producer who put this together. You can follow him on Twitter at Grant Stern. And check out our website that he put together, dwarfreport.com. Help us out so that we can provide more original programming like this. And everyone buckle in, because it looks like the Mueller probe is about to speed up. Thanks again for listening. Onward! Onward!